If you've looked at your bulletin, and on the back of the bulletin is my sermon title and the subpoints. So, if you've already read it, hang in there with me. It's not what you think it is. Okay? If you don't have one, my title is On the Road Again. And it's not attributed to any kind of country music celebrity either. Okay, just for your... But that, that song does resonate with me because I was pastoring in Jacksonville, Florida, and large funeral, young guy that came to the Lord, died young in his 30s of leukemia, but he had a connection with North Jacksonville Baptist Church, and, you know, their pastor was there. He's the doctorate and all of this, and uh, I didn't realize that one of the songs that's going to play is Willie Nelson himself, On the Road Again. And I wouldn't even make eye contact with the pastor at North Jacksonville Baptist Church, but he couldn't wait to come up and says, in an assembly of God church, on the road again? I said, that's not my choice. But uh, I want to take you to the book of Acts. If you're not there, it's chapter 18. We're going to hit on 18, 19, and 20, uh, not in total, but we're going to create, uh, we're going to go through these subpoints. Uh, through the course. This is, of course, focusing on Antioch. Um, I'll have a couple of slides up for you uh, in a little bit on, as far as maps, and I want to show you some things. But Antioch up in Syria, it's not even that big of a community anymore. But in, in Paul's time, that church in that city was the missionary center of the church. It's where all, all three of the first three journeys of Paul started was launched. In fact, there's not even a record that the apostles had anything to do with that church being created. Uh, when Paul was Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, in Acts 8, when the persecution just exploded after Stephen's stoning, it said that all the believers just about left Jerusalem. They all fled. Only the apostles stayed. So that meant everybody that left Jerusalem to seek cover somewhere else, went in the parts of the world without an apostle to lead them. And we're told that some went to Cyprus, an island near Israel, and some of the people that were converted there ended up launching the church in Antioch, Syria. And it became the hub. It became the center of missionary work. That city was the third largest city in the world at the time. It had half a million people in it. 500,000 people, only smaller than Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. So it was the hub. It was the church. And their, their ministry team was like an all-star cast. They had all these different people. Barnabas realized that there's too much ministry here. And so he goes over to Tarsus and gets Paul, who's been saved for a while, comes back, and Paul becomes part of the teaching, preaching team there at Antioch, and in Acts 13, if you follow this, there's five of them, they're fasting and praying, they're seeking God, they're asking God to reveal to them who's supposed to go and start taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. And it says the Holy Spirit in that prayer meeting specifically pointed out that it would be Paul and Barnabas. So they launch their first missionary journey. They come back, they have a little bit of disagreement about taking John Mark with them, so that divides that team. Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go on different missions trips. 
But when you're reading Acts 18, you, because of the way that the chapter division is in your Bible, it, it may have a line there saying third missionary journey. If it doesn't, you almost miss it because it's so subtle as to the transition from them finishing up journey two to journey three. We're going to touch on that in just a moment. But it's, if you start reading in Acts 18, say 21, it shows the finishing up of that second missionary journey. And I want to show you that map. It's the first map that shows you how that journey finished up. And, um, and it, uh, actually, it's, it's a map before that. Or is there a map before that? No? Okay. Uh, okay, this is, this is the uh, second missionary journey. I wanted you to see how the first one ended, but we'll just leave that one up, and I want to refer to that map in just a moment. Uh, in verse 21, it says, uh, Paul is again in Ephesus, and it's amazing how much time he spent in Ephesus, and that's going to be a major focus for us this morning. He told him, he says, I will come back if it's God's will. So he set sail from Ephesus and came and landed at Caesarea, went on down to Jerusalem. This is verse 22. And then he went, goes back up to Antioch. This shows how the second missionary journey started. So uh, he, um, he spends time, verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. So on this, you see that how they started. The next one is, and it doesn't even say what happens here in Derby, Lystra, Pisidia, Colossae, Laodicea. It only starts focusing when it gets to Ephesus. If you're in chapter 19, and this is the fast track to miracles. Some of these subtitles, I just thought they fit the title to begin with, On the Road Again, okay? Fast track to miracles. Uh, Apollos, when you look at chapter 19, it's not even about Paul very much. It's about this man named Paul, Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, the second largest municipality in the world. So Apollos is a Jew, but he believes in Jesus, and he's teaching and preaching about Jesus. He's in Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife ministry team that Paul has left specifically in Ephesus, and they hear him teaching in the synagogue. So they said, you know what? We can help him. He's really good. He's kind of like a skilled apologist. He argues for Christ. He's, he's trying to convince these people that Jesus is Messiah. So they invite him to their home, and they more adequately help him to understand the gospel. So after they help finish training him, he has a burden to go down to Corinth, to Greece. And so he, uh, they, they send letters, and all of this is like wrapped up in chapter 19. He spends, uh, Paul then turns his attention when he comes in, following all of that, that he shows up in Ephesus. This is when Paul gets over to Ephesus, and this is how it picks it up, that he spends three months declaring the kingdom of God in the same synagogue. And it doesn't go well because they just become obstinate. I think that's the NIV statement. They just become obstinate. They, they get hard-headed. They get resistant. So he takes the disciples that he has, goes over to this lecture hall, and if you're following this, it's named after a man named Tyrannus. 
And for two years, this is the interesting thing if you're in Acts 19. For two years, he spends daily having discussions in this lecture hall. And the people, it says the people through those two years, everybody in that city and beyond have heard the gospel. And then in verse 11, it says, and God did many extraordinary miracles through Paul. God began to do the miraculous through Paul to the point that handkerchiefs and aprons that belonged to him or associated with him that touched him, people were taking them and taking them to sick people and they were getting healed. Wouldn't you like to see that again? This was, this was God working through Paul two years. He spent daily and God began to honor that consistency and anointed him. And it also says in that same place that these people were healed and evil spirits were driven from them. That's even better. It's one thing to get healed of sickness. It's really good to get evil spirits away from you. So this is where I came up with the demonic traffic jams. And if you thought that I was referring to construction sites around uh, Alabama, it's not. <laughs> I did have a, a comment, a Mercury comment that I'd I just believe theologically from that, having that car, that the, a demon can possess an inanimate object. And because uh, I believe it did have a demon in it. So, and Brenda will confess that she, I scared the daylights out of her when the brakes fell downtown Lakeland. So I had to gear it down and stop in, with emergency brake in a parking lot. So, and she still dated me after. I don't know that. But uh, I'm not talking about things like that. But I'm talking about, and I was talking to Brother Sister Davis before. Because when, when God begins to move, you can expect the enemy to respond. And that's exactly what was, miracles was happening, and then the demonic started, you know, manifesting, and, and to the point that even people who didn't know what they were doing were trying to exercise people with demons. One particular man, Sneva, who... Uh, had seven sons, and, and this, is, this is really, I, I love this. Uh, in verse 15, if you're there in chapter 19, I, this is one of my favorite, favorite stories. But they, they were trying to cast a demon out of a guy, and uh, this is how they said to the demon, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the demon says this, Jesus I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Don't you love that? <laughs> they knew that these people really didn't have real power. They were trying to be a third party, maybe channeling Paul through their words, and it didn't work because it says that the demoniac jumped on them, beat them so bad that all seven of them had to run out of the house naked and bleeding. Those are not my words. That's the Bible. So all of this was happening, and there was a demonic manifestation. People, you, and I remember going to Buenos Aires. Uh, Ron and Terry Pitts had started that church down in Buenos Aires, and uh, we took a team from Jackson. I'll never forget this because one of the guys on our team <laughs> freaked him out. But Ron said... Uh, then where we're at, the police would not give us any security. But he says, we advise you not to go in there. 
We will not patrol that because it's too dangerous. It's gang-related. It's drug-infested. We really tell you should not go into that area of brainless areas. But they felt like God had called them. They took a tent in there instead of a tent and started having services every night. Moises Berrientos was the pastor. I think he came from Chile. And he's still the pastor of that church, by the way. And uh, he says that there was a little curtained-off place in the tent. We went there to help build a permanent building, seat about 450 people. And there's a little curtained area in that tent. And he says, that's where we take people that need to be delivered from demons. And one, one of the guys on our team did like this, says, demons. I, I didn't sign up for that. Demons, I mean, are you kidding me? There's, he says, yeah, that almost every night in the first several weeks we had services in that tent. Almost every night somebody got saved or somebody got delivered from demonic possession. And in uh, that church, when we got there, was running 250 people. All but one family in that church had been converted in the first couple of years. Only one family came from that was, that was brave enough to come from another church in Buenos Aires with them, and this church has exploded. But I think the Davis will say, in the United States, we don't see too much demonic activity, but it's kind of like undercurrent. It's, it's kind of subtle. But if you go to, I think, the Kayafa team that went to in, uh, Indonesia and Sri Lanka, you see it there. If you go to other places in the world where there's a lot of idolatry and darkness and sorcery and all of this, there's demonic manifestation, and you have to be ready for it. Filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed of God, and cast the demons out. And this is what was going on in Ephesus. But uh, there's something about, I wrote, I wrote this down clear in the wreckage, and this is what I want to point out, is that after all these people had been delivered from different things, they brought their sorcery stuff. They brought their books. They brought all of the relics, anything they used for their sorcery, for their idolatry. They brought all of that and burned it. They got rid of it, and it says it was worth like 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 silver coins. And they got rid of it. I think there needs to be, after God delivers us from something, there needs to be a cleaning. There needs to be a clearing of the wreckage. And how would that translate to us? There's probably people in this room that need to, to maybe change their TV plan because there's channels there, there's movie channels there that, that a believer really shouldn't have. And you say, well, we'll just be careful about it. But there's things maybe coming into your home and we wonder why things are not going so well, especially when you have access through iPads and, and maybe there needs to be some cleansing of hard drives. Who knows? Maybe there's some in this room that needs to go into covenant eyes, which I'm a, I'm a mentor for someone with covenant eyes. There, when God sets us free, we need to rid ourselves. Maybe it's prescription medicine that's in your cabinet. It has nothing to do with, with exact physical needs, but it's things you lean on when you can't cope, I'm not making stuff up this morning. That applies to a lot of people in this room, or some people at least in this room, that we have mechanisms we resort to when we feel like we cannot handle it, and the pressure gets to us, and we have to lay it down. I remember my dad praying and asking God. He was a, a smoker when he got saved, and I don't, I don't remember my dad being anything but a Christian. 
But he, he said many, many times he was telling the Lord, please take this from me, please take this from me. And finally the Lord just spoke to him really clearly. He said, I didn't give them to you. And I'm not the one buying them. That's kind of like taking the sorcery stuff and piling it up and getting rid of it. And that simple truth, like he realized, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the one doing this to myself. And God gave him the strength. Now he had to have a toothpick in his mouth for a, lot, for a number of years just from having something in his mouth. But I'm just saying that God wants us to clear the wreckage of stuff in our lives to get rid of the garbage. That, that kind of erodes our faith and our peace sometimes. And we, and we get through those times and say, wow, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I resort to that? It's because we got to pile it up and get rid of it. And here's the next thing. I'm telling you, I'm going to get through this pretty quick, so hang on. Detours and distractions. There's seven identifiable detours and distractions that Paul encountered after that. And the first was this. After everything that happened so good in Ephesus, guess what's happening? There's a riot. There's a riot in Ephesus. You know, it's all th the rest of chapter 19. Demetrius, he's a silversmith. He makes his money on making idols to the great goddess Artemis, uh, or Diana, as, as some translations put it. And, you know, you just follow the money. People only get upset when their money starts being tightened up. And so there's this riot, and I like it in, in the verse 32 because it said there's people that got in the protest and they really didn't know what they were protesting. I thought, well, that could be modern-day the United States of America. <laughs> there, was, there was this attraction to, we're protesting, great, I'm protesting. What are you protesting? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why we're protesting, but I just love a good protest. Paul wanted to go out into the arena, and his friends begged him, don't do that. It won't be safe for you. And so he took off and went down to Macedonia. And went, this is verse... Uh, 20 verses 1 through 3, he, he goes to, and he, we're not even told what he does in Macedonia and Greece, but we know when he gets down to Greece, watch this in verse 3, he stayed there about three months because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. And, and I think it's slide 8 that I want to show this. Maybe it's the next slide. All right, this, this, is, this is the loop. He, he goes... He goes across into uh, Philippi and down into Thessalonica. That's Macedonia. And he comes down. And we don't even know what happens on the trip going. We just know that when he got down to Corinth, he was there three months. And he was going to sail across over to Syria, which is Antioch. He was heading home. And yet he found out that somebody was plotting something against him. So he changes his mind. He turns around, and then he tracks back this way, back up into Berea, Thessalonica, Amphipolis, Philippi, and he's at Philippi. And if you're following this, he stays at Philippi because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's Passover. But he sends seven members of his team on over to Troas, which they're going to sell to shortly. But this is the thing. He has to avoid the plot against him. And then in three months, he has to change course. He, didn't, he wasn't able to go back like he wanted to, so he had to make this circle. He had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
Paul and Luke stay there for that feast in, in Philippi. The next thing you see is they head over to Troas. Five days it took them to get over to Troas to meet up with their other team members. And they were there seven days. Now, later on in the chapter, the reason Paul is in a hurry is he's trying to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And if they're having the Passover in Philippi, 50 days later is Pentecost. 12 days are already used up in getting over to Troas. So he's in a hurry, so what does he do? He preaches all night. He's in a hurry. I guess he's giving them like a conference in one night. And at midnight, this is the longest sermon recorded. At midnight, this guy is, in, is up on the third floor leaning next to a window, and he falls asleep. I want to say, I think I'm a little bit more effective at putting people to sleep than Paul is because it doesn't take me near that long for somebody to have a good nap on me. But the guy falls out the window. They think he's dead. He might be dead. Paul runs over to him. This is midnight, okay? This is the middle of the night. Runs over, grabs him, pulls him to himself, says, no, he's alive. And so they send him back upstairs. Why do you want to take the guy back upstairs? <laughs> Feed him something. Paul goes back and finishes his preaching to daylight all night. Why is he doing that and why is that important? It's because he's handling these unexpected things. He didn't expect somebody to plot against him. He didn't expect for things to go the way they did that night with somebody almost dying in his church service. So he's doing all of this so that he can get back to where he wants to be, and that's in Jerusalem. And then there's the last detour is this. The team sails from Troas to Asos. You see this little section here, Troas to Asos? It's only about 20 miles. Now, why I pay attention to this stuff, I'm just an observant person. And I wish I wasn't so particular about things that jump out. It says, everybody took the ship from Troas to Asos, except Paul. He went on foot, which is a lot more difficult than riding in a ship. Why did he do that? Why did he go on foot in the rest of the team? I don't know. But there had to be a reason that he did that. Maybe it was because there was people he needed to talk to. When he gets on down to where Medellin is and on down toward uh, Samos and Chios, he sends for the brethren in Ephesus because he doesn't have time to go over to Ephesus because he's trying to get back. All of that is to say he was dealing with the unexpected. Now listen, I think we can learn from him that we need to have a plan. He had a plan. He had plans through all of this, but he was always adjusting that's hard for me. When I have a plan, I want to stick to the plan. But Paul was flexible, and I believe God is wanting to speak to us about on our own journey that we need to deal better with the unexpected. And we may treat the unexpected as not the will of God, but it very well could be the will of God. Like my mom always told my dad, maybe we're running late because God is going to help us to avoid an accident, Winford. That's what she would say. And he thought being tardy was like the eighth deadly sin. What about home sweet home? I'll finish up with this. What is home sweet home? 
is not him getting back to Jerusalem. I want to take you back to chapter 20 and verse 7. When he gets over into Philippi, and then he's, and he's had this meeting with people, and then he, the first day of the week, it says they came together to break bread. What is that? They came together to break bread. It's communion. There's a, there's a way of phrasing it if it's just a meal. But the first day of the week was when the church gathered. That, was, became, that became the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the first day. That's why we don't celebrate Saturday as the Sabbath, even though the Seventh-day Adventists tell you you should. We celebrate Sunday because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And we don't have communion probably nearly as much. But I want to tell you, and, and our men are going to go and get the elements, and the praise team is going to come up now. But what I want to say to you is this. Communion is a celebration of our community, of our togetherness. Um, last week, I did a wedding for Ethan Giles, Raymond's grandson. And um, they wanted to have communion as part of the sealing of their vows. But both sets of parents came up, and the six of us, Six of them with me was standing around a communion table. And I shared just a few thoughts with them that from this point on, your families are connected. From this point on, you will share grandchildren. From this point on, you'll be inseparably connected. And they had communion together. It was this picture of now we're in covenant relationship. Listen, this is, this is our church family. We're in a covenant relationship with each other. We're not in competition with each other or with another congregation. God has one church, one body, but it's expressed in different places in communities of faith. And we all need that, that community, do we not? And communion is the way we celebrate our togetherness. Lord, I pray this morning that you prepare our hearts for an amen to your truth. Your truth is that we are of one body, many members. We belong to one entity, and that is you, Lord. And you instituted this on the night of your betrayal, where you took the cup and you took the bread and you gave it a different meaning than leaving Egypt. You gave it the meaning of what your death and what your blood does to remove our sin and break sin's hold on our life to no longer be our master but Lord that you would be our master it's your body broken for us and that body broken for us is to join us together in a covenant community your blood that washes away our sins should also wash away our prejudices wash away our anxieties wash away our our personality quirks. There's no reason why we shouldn't be more in unity and more together than we ever have been because of your shed blood and your resurrection giving us life. Lord, I thank you for all of the different demographics in this community, in this church this morning, from age to ethnicity. This is the way your church should look. It should span all ages and all kinds of backgrounds. 
Help us to champion that more, Lord, to embrace that more, to communicate that more, that no one is excluded from your mercy. No one is excluded from your grace because you love all and you want all to know you. So as we prepare our hearts, Lord, to take this, join us, Lord, join us in a more strong covenant relationship that we encourage and pray for each other and bless each other. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me?